Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, one and all, and welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference, hosted by me. Joe Haddo. Today I'm joined by two journalists and authors and music fans who are going to go head to head a bit later on in a war of the words. My first guest started his career at The Enemy and has gone on to write for many other publications. He's a journalist, columnist and has written many best-selling novels. Tony Parsons, welcome. Thank you for having me. And next to him, a journalist, reporter and author who is about to publish her first novel. Hello, Charlotte Philbeck. Hello. Lovely to have you both here. Welcome to Book Off. Tony, I think the last time we met, I could be wrong, we were in a shepherd's caravan in Hay on Wye. Sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> and we sort of left to the our own devices. The moonlight was shining on your Chardonnay, as I recall. <laughs> it was yeah. indeed. <laughs> um, how are you? I haven't yeah, seen good. you in a long yeah, time. No, I'm good. I'm good. I'm, uh, I'm hanging in there. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, surviving. I'm... Uh, I'm happy. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And lovely yeah. to see you, Charlotte. We've, we've run into each other far too many times over the last we couple of have. weeks it's, now, it's haven't it's we? It's ridiculous. And not in a shepherd's hut, unfortunately. But not in a shepherd's but hut, but that, that might come another time. Exactly. Uh, you know, hay is, hay is but a month away, so you never <laughs> <True>. know. <laughs> um, we're going to talk about your latest books. We're going to talk about writing. And then later on, of course, we've got the book off where you're going to go head to head, putting a, a book that you both love that you think everyone should read against each other but first let's talk about um well your latest novel tony because it's another max wolf book isn't it yep it's, yep it's, it's the the last max wolf book the last yeah the last max wolf book. it's called hashtag taken yeah liam neeson didn't have a hashtag so there you go I've got one, up on, <laughs> one up on liam neeson that's what separates me, me from him yeah so it's a it's the sixth book in the series and it's um i don't know i just kind of I wanted to I wanted to write a series. Um, I wrote three, and I was pleased with the way they turned out. And and um, six feels like a nice number. And and when readers uh, get a chance to read the book, I think they'll agree with me that it comes to kind of a natural conclusion. It, and um, and I know some people are disappointed that I'm not going to write anymore. But you know, you never you never know. You never know. I mean, I'm aware that. Um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle didn't want to write uh, Sherlock Holmes after a while and then when he was pressured to make a comeback he wrote The Hounds of the Baskervilles which of course is <laughs> the most famous of all the Sherlock Holmes books but I, I am um, playing the step away it just ends at a nice moment with the characters yeah and isn't there something to be said for you know those great TV series as well that where you think episodes of six one series uh, six episodes and we still look at them now as being these wonderful things and we don't and they, went, they never went and did any more and you go that 
that makes them a bit more special as well. Well, the, the great ones, I think the really great series, if you look at, you know, the golden age of um, the golden age of TV, and I remember it very clearly because my, my novel Man and Boy came out the same week that The Sopranos started. Wow. And so I, and I remember going to do an, my first book event in, in Manchester and going upstairs and watching it at the Mel Maison in, in, uh, in Manchester and just being blown away by it. And all the series like that, The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, the really great stuff, Game of Thrones is going to be the same. They live on their own terms. Yeah. They, they live on their own terms. It's the stuff... You know, when they're desperate for another series, when they're desperate for another commission, another contract, that's kind of that's the sign of the second rate, I think. So if you can, you know, walk away on your own terms, this before they get tired of you, it's great. And it just felt right. This was the, the natural yeah. It's, just, it, it's and I'm ready to write something else. I'm ready to to try something else. I'm I'm into somebody else. But um, you know, it's a good um, it's a good ending to the series. I think. Talk a bit more about it in just a moment, Charlotte. I just want to turn to you because you're publishing your. First novel, yes. the most difficult thing. This is coming out in July, and and this is a, a combination of espionage and suspense, domestic suspense. I'd exactly. Say. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about where this came from? Yes. So, well, this is my first book that's going to be published. Mm. I think quite like quite a lot of writers. I this is you know people imagine that you know I just sort of like came up with this and, <laughs> and it's, but actually I look back and eight years ago when I was first on maternity leave and I was going slightly mad. Um, with boredom and maybe just going mad anyway um, I decided that I wanted to write a sort of journalist procedural so I started working on this manuscript that I basically only had eight months to do because then I was going to go back to work so eight months came up and I sort of went the end and then sent it <laughs> off to ten agents and I didn't get one <laughs> so uh, it, uh, sort of eight years down or well six years down the line um, I wrote The Most Difficult Thing which now I look at it actually was a culmination of lots of things that I was exploring in the previous book um, but now I sort of have more of an idea of what I want to do with it and basically I've spent a lot of time between then and now thinking about my grandfather Kim Philby who was a famous spy um, who famously you know people talk about him betraying his country but for me the thing that I couldn't quite reconcile myself to was the fact that he'd also duped his family you know he had five children and as I've had children of my own and I've struggled to understand not just how someone can make that decision but actually enact that in your daily life like that takes serious commitment and you know the psychology around that is just fascinating Mm. so I decided to sort of tie in my obsession with crime fiction with this sort of longing to sort of understand how he did that. Um, and together, sort of, they've come, the two things have come together in this contemporary spy novel, um, which is sort of starts at the point of a woman walking out on her family, and you sort of come to understand how she got there um, and trying to understand what she's going to do next. Mm-hmm. And interesting, you said this obsession with crime fiction. And actually, mm. Tony, I wondered where your sort of what first drew you to wanting to write these slightly gritty crime novels. When I, when I was I was a young music journalist, and in in my day, it was a bit like national service. You know, you kind of did your time, <laughs> and then your time was over. And when you were twenty five, you were you were old, and you were you were out, and and you you were kind of yelling enough by then anyway. You know, because we were you know we were caning it quite hard it was um you know uh, late 70s um we would stay up for three nights in a row as a matter of routine i mean just it was just quite a wild time and by the time you were 25 you you were enough you had had enough and uh, you were done um 
and I had, you know, I was really, I was a washed up music journalist when I was 25 and I was looking around for work and I had a, it was a kind of a golden age for magazines in the 80s and I had a lot of, um, a lot of friends, a lot of female friends who were, who were working for Elle and working for like the Guardian's Woman's Page and, and they were kind of taking pity on me and putting work my way and, um, and one of the, one of the jobs that my friend Louise Chan, um, gave me to do for when she was the features editor at L was to um, be embedded with the Vice Squad in West End Central um, in Savile Row which is the big uh, people think of the Beatles on the roof of Savile Row and they think of the, the bespoke tailoring and that's true but the other the third thing in Savile Row is this massive great police station West End Central that is such a good and, job um, <laughs> and, 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 and I was um, I was embedded with the Vice Squad and, um, and Louise said you know and tell us what you think about pornography, what you think about pornography, what you feel about pornography. And it's and when you're when you you know you saw the, some of the images of the, you know some of it was some of it was pretty anodyne and and routine, but some of it was um, you know men with scrotums nailed to the floor and just you know it just had that uh, I thought pornography had that ability to defy your imagination. I would never have dreamed. You know, I couldn't have. Um, you think you've been around the block, mm. and then you realise, well, you haven't been around that particular block. And it was enormous fun. And what was great about it was that with the young cops, they were exactly the same age as the musicians I was hanging out with. <laughs> so they were these, like, you know, 24, 24 25 year old cops, you know. And, and it was quite the, the press and the police had quite a good relationship at that time. I think it, it's broken down in recent years. But the cops and the journalists had a quite a good relationship. And, you know, so I was allowed to, like, you know, shout up against the wall and you know, <laughs> kick down doors. And it was enormous fun. And it was a good piece. And and I didn't really... Sometimes you're doing research and you don't know you're doing research. Yeah. I'm sure that when you heard stories about your grandfather, you know, you didn't realise that you were doing research. And it's only when you sit down and write a book... 10 20 30 years later that you realize actually that was that was fantastic research and you know i, I was out um screening 2010 and um it was a screening organized by sam mendes who i don't really know but had um written to me about um my novel man and boy and sent me a, a very nice email about that and we talked about maybe doing a film and um about you know a on, on Man and Boy and, and that fell through but we kind of stayed in touch and he, he had this screening Sam and we were um, this film that he felt people were ignoring it was uh, the kids were all, the kids were alright the Annette Benning film he wasn't connected to it at all he just thought it was a really good film people weren't going to see it and he was right his call was right so we were standing around having a drink beforehand and you know what are you up to what are you doing just a bit of small talk and he said the next thing I'm going to do is the new James Bond movie and and that's you know with hindsight kind of 10 years on it seems well yeah that was a great move for him but at the time you know the director of the Donmar Warehouse um, Oscar winning director of um, American Beauty yeah quite an art house director a commercially successful critically acclaimed art house director to do 007 that was a big big thing and then he started talking about what the Ian Fleming books had meant to him when he was a kid growing up and and it just absolutely mirrored my soul and just absolutely echoed my own experience they talked about loving the books as like an 11 12 13 14 year old and and never really seeing whatever it was he loved never really seeing that on screen in those you know those cinematic incarnations with Sean Connery and Roger Moore and all the rest 
and and saying what he wanted to do was capture whatever it was he loved that little bit of kind of that kind of gritty gritty core that was never really in the films and he said um so i'm reading rereading all the books he said i'm just working my way through the books we're rereading all the books and we're you know we're going to take it from there and uh and i thought wow what a fantastic thing to do to reread all the james bond books i'm going to do that <laughs> and i and i went home and started casino royale that night the very first and by the end of the first paragraph i thought i'm going to write a series i'm going to write my own series and um and so then you you know then you look at the practicalities i mean it's quite i think it's quite liberating having a a debut novel because no one's got any preconceived ideas mm. about you you can you know you you, you, can, you can be whatever you want to be but when you've um when you're an old geezer like me and you're a bit long in the tooth and people <laughs> kind of think and always you know people saying well you can't do that because he's a music journalist and then they say well you can't do that because we wrote man and boy and so there's always going to be someone looking back at what you did five years ago and saying you can't do this new thing um, so I discussed it, you know, I discussed it with my agent, I discussed it with my wife, and my agent said, it's a good idea, he said, but you're going to have to start again. He said, you're going to have to start again. He said, you can't, he said, some, you know, your publisher will just put it out, indulge in you, and, uh, and that's a kiss of death. You've got you to write it, you've got to write it without a contract, someone's got to be passionate about it, and, uh, you know, so, you know, you're going to have to cash in your pension, you're going to have to fund yourself. And, and I discussed it with my wife, because you kind of... You kind of think, well, is this a reckless thing to do? Is this an irresponsible thing to do? So I talked talked to my wife Eureka about it, and she said, you know, I've got, I've got faith in you. I'm sure you make a success of it. But you, you know, you never really know because it's not just about you. You know, it's yeah. about the economy. It's about the industry. It's you know, it's about. Oh, there's all all these other factors. I know. Um, I know a guy who had a book about Michael Jackson out last month, and you think, oh, oh God, gosh. you know, oh, you know, and and you never know. You know, you never know. But anyway, so I you know cashed in my pension, uh, wrote the murder bag, the first Max Wolf book, uh, you know, sold it within twenty four hours, went to number one. So happy ever after. <laughs> but and then you realise you've got to do it again, you know, and it's all downhill. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so in in a way, going back, well, thanks to Sam Mendes, but then going back and and yeah. looking at those Fleming novels was research, even though you maybe oh, yeah. didn't yeah. N- know it as well. And there was, um, you know, there was. You know, this, and you look at those books, and you think, well, what did what did I love about? Them? What what was it that I loved? And there's just there's definitely an aspirational element to it. You know, yeah. that I'd never, you know, that I was reading Ian Fleming's descriptions of the Caribbean, and I wouldn't go to the Caribbean for another twenty years. You know, and and it was incredibly intoxicating. This other this other one he'd write about, you know, good clothes. You know, <laughs> about bespoke clothes. You know, and I had a pair of Levi 501s, you know, that I wore all the time. And just, and and I thought, you know, try and get that in without it, with you know, so my, um, someone said, when Murderbag came out, someone said, um, Max Wolf and his five-year-old daughter would not live in a loft in Smithfield. Um, they wouldn't do it, and it's just ridiculous. And, but, I, you know, I love Smithfield. I love the meat market in London. I love that area around Farringdon. And I wanted him to live there. You know, I wanted him <laughs> yeah. to live there. And also, you know, I, I, you know, li- I live in Hampstead, and I know quite a few people who were who were in care, and who will be millionaires because we adopted them. You know, there's a kind of there's an un, you know you de- you never know in life. Life is not as predictable mm-hmm. as um, as boring people would make it out to be. You never know. Yeah. You never know. Also, we want to we want to read someone who's living in a 
cool loft in I definitely wasn't going to put him any, anywhere that I, I wouldn't aspire to live myself exactly yeah, yeah quite right. it's probably a good a good rule for <laughs> growing writers out there. I tell you what though I'd be going to Smith, Smithfield far too much if I lived near there I'd just be having steak every night exactly yeah. <laughs> yes it wouldn't be a good idea um, Charlotte you're um, we, we touched on this very briefly earlier about that sort of family dynamic that, mm. that's intrigued you and, and you mentioned your grandfather is that something that's that's come through your your journalism as well something that you're just have always been a bit fascinated that that it was inevitable that was going to come into your writing I don't I, I think I sort of always have um so to go back in 2010 I went to Moscow and I did a sort of big um ex- exploration piece for the independent where I was working at the time um and I had a couple of people asking me if I wanted to write books about my grandfather and I always sort of very actively um, pushed against it because it felt, um, it didn't feel like it was my story necessarily. There were so many other people who I could potentially be, um, whose privacy I would be intruding on and, you know, in in my family and for various other reasons. And also I felt like I didn't want to just be using his story to make my own name as a writer so I was always intent that I wanted to do my own thing um but I think inevitably it's kind of seeped through and I'm fascinated with espionage and I'm fascinated you know I did my A-level dissertation on In Cold Blood and Helter Skelter the prosecution um account of the Manson um trial uh it's just and you know I was a reporter did a lot of undercover work and that has just you know however I've tried to sort of um, push against it, it keeps coming back to kind of lure me in um, but I think this book is very much my own so I've sort of taken that you know his story as a jumping off point and um, one thing I've realised that I'm absolutely obsessed with the place that I grew up so I grew up in um, sort of Kentish town mm. um, around the Heath my dad and you know that's the one place I've sort of been traipsing up and over in my whole life and everything that I write seems to come back, to pull me back to there, to the point where I'm now thinking I really need to move somewhere else. <laughs> I really need to sort of broaden my... Um, but I think it's really interesting how we use novels to, you know, it's very obvious, but to sort of to make sense of our own personal history in so many ways. And, and, and in the terms of, you know, I go back to the pubs that I used to work at, the Crown and Goose in Camden, which was pulled down and is now made into luxury flats with a really sort of strange... Um, shiny guitar shop um underneath and i sort of i think about the the way that the city's changed and the effect it's had on the people that i know and and i think it's the sense of sort of yeah my my story in so many different ways that filters through into the book but obviously becomes something else Mm. and is it is is it annoying for people like me to always ask about your grandfather, you know, when you're doing interviews or when you're doing, the, you know, the book deal even or the, the press release, you know, he's he's always referenced, he's always there. I mean, it's annoying in a sense, but I can't pretend that it hasn't yeah. helped me in a way, you know, yeah. like I have I couldn't sit here. It's so annoying that people are interested in talking about my grandfather, which is probably the reason that somebody read my manuscript and then gave me the book deal. I have to say it on my own merits. I don't think, I genuinely believe that, you know, uh, it's it's not enough alone, but I do think that it you know it's a blessing and a curse, um, and it has been a curse at points in my life. But I think I'm I think for so long I didn't understand my own like how I felt about it, and it's been a you know it's a very compli- complicated and complex relationship, mm-hmm. and it's ever evolving how I feel 
about a lot of the things that he did and you know, there's a lot of things that I'm deeply uncomfortable with and but there's a lot of things that I'm sort of proud of and I just needed to understand where I stood in relation to him um, and his story and I feel confident in that now so no I'm not I'm not it's not annoying but I hope that in time people will be more interested in talking about the books in their own right yes. rather than <laughs> him <laughs> <laughs> but he's just you know it's yeah. referenced he, yeah. and he's fascinating you know his story still fascinates yeah. me so what can i say <laughs> <laughs> um question for, for both of you i'll come to you tony first because um i was i was reading something yesterday which which was from a uh, written by an author who says they that they are always trying to write alongside what is happening in our world and our headlines you know and i know that that there are many writers who just plunge into fiction and they they disregard everything that's going on in the world and they just write a story. Would you say you fall on either of those sides? Well, I, I had um I I bought myself a couple of years to to write uh, the murder bag and because I wanted to get it right and I wanted to um, think deeply about it and um, and one of the things that I decided was that it had to be completely contemporary. You know that. Um, be, you know, because if you look at the great crime writers over the last hundred years, they they were contemporary. You know, Sherlock Holmes wasn't writing, uh, Conan Doyle wasn't writing nostalgia pieces. You know, and neither neither was you know any you know, Agatha Christie, anybody you care to name. They were all contemporary writers. They were all writing about the world outside their window. Um, and I, so I thought, you know, I made the the pragmatic uh, decision that I should write about whatever was out there whether it was people trafficking or terrorism and and actually you know it's the the fifth book Girl on Fire was written when there was a lot of um, there was a lot of terror, terror activity in London and my daughter was just get it was just getting to the age you know kind of early teens where she was knocking around London by herself she just missed both London Bridge and Westminster she, she was just she was kind of in the streets when the streets were closed off and um and it felt very personal yeah. and so um so as a writer you're also looking for great material you're also looking for stuff that you care about and you're invested in you know you're looking for you, you know there i think writers are cannibals you know to and, and we're all cannibals to a greater or lesser degree but i definitely see in myself that i am you know even at horrible moments in my life i'm thinking this is actually really good material. This mm. is important stuff. You know, when a parent dies or something, you're not, you know, you're not at sit, sitting there actively taking notes, but you're aware that it's a massive life moment. You're aware that this is, you know, this is, um, you know, this is something profound happening here. And so I, you know, I, I make, made the decision that Max Wolf would be very, very contemporary and would write, write about all that stuff. And as I say, it's also, it's, it's um, stuff that hasn't been done before, you know, that, that people haven't written about. 2019 um and um so i you know it's one of the things i sat and thought about and you know there's a room 101 at new scotland yard is um the metropolitan police crime museum so it's the black museum they call it and it's partly a museum and they've got you know case books going back to jack the ripper and they've got you know uh batteries that um the richardson's attached to their uh their criminal, their criminal rivals, and you know, all the way through to the the melted keyboard of that car that was driven into Glasgow Airport um, a few years ago, and and it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating place, and I was, I wanted somewhere where Max Wolf could go for advice, 
where he could go to. I wanted I wanted a Yoda figure. I wanted a Yoda figure for him to turn to. And I thought the guy that curates the Black Museum, the guy that curates that, and it's really it's really really difficult to get in there. Really difficult to to get in there. So I kind of made it all up. You know, I just made it all up. And then when the L London um, Museum had an exhibition about the they said well, you're you're considered to be one of the leading experts on the black music, <laughs> and we'd like you to open. You would like you to open the the exhibition, you know, with the the, the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. I said, well, I'd be delighted to, but I've never actually been in there. You know? <laughs> so they said, well, you got to come up here, and so they, so I spent a lot of time up there, hanging about in there, hanging about there, and. Is it huge? Is it, is it vast? It's pretty big. It's, yeah. it's like two large rooms. It's two. It's like a little ante room when you go in room one hundred and one, uh, and and then it kind of opens up, and there's all these dusty little corners. You know, there's a dusty little corner where there will there be something about you know the Soho gangs of the fifties, and 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 you know I actually ended up spending quite a bit of time there, and um, and you know do feel. I'm quite familiar with it now, but I was amazed that nobody had ever used it before. You know, mm. I was amazed that nobody had ever because it's it's a great, it's a great place. It's like the most difficult room to, in London to get into. I remember P. D. James once had um, a dinner up there. I guess in the office or maybe in the museum. I don't know. But she had she had um, dinner up there. P. D. James shortly before she died, and um, with two senior detectives, and neither of the two senior detectives had been, ever been in there before. You know, it's a real and wow. they they what they tend to do is they tend to ship. A coach load of kids down from Hendon. So these young, young policemen and women, just before they graduate, they they turn because there's like cases full of mixed, real guns and fake guns, and and it's it, and it's I think it's to, to impress upon them how dangerous their job is. And there's some very very moving stuff in there. There's a wall of um, people that have uh, died in the line of duty over the last 150 years. Um, and you know it's heartbreaking. All these smiling faces. Everybody's smiling. You know, everybody's smiling. And and you know they're all kind of mustachioed men at first, and then women start appearing in the fifties. And you know, it's a, and black faces and brown faces start appearing. And it's it's just a fantastic. It's one of the most moving sights in London. So it's um and of course you know it's interesting as a writer. You you think, what did I get wrong? Mm. What did I get wrong? What did I get wrong? And um and I think what I got wrong is um. It's very cold and very dark. They keep the temperature turned way down, and it's very dark. But I have to say, in all honesty, I think the stuff that I wrote when I was making it up was better than the stuff <laughs> I, that I wrote when I'd actually been up there. And I can't quite work out why. I guess the, something about the power of the imagination. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny, isn't it? Quite amazing. <laughs> what about you, Charlotte, in, 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 ter in, in, in terms of writing what's happening, you know, being contemporary within your mm. storylines is that something that you that you are conscious of or, or, or care about well what i think is fascinating about espionage and i think regardless of where it is and where you know sorry whose side you're on is that it's just rather than the sort of specifics and the mechanisms is the fact that there it's just about deceit and duplicity <laughs> and these sort of um, these themes that actually don't change much over time and obviously the techniques change and the you know the technology has changed so much and actually now to write a spy novel sort of a pure spy novel with so much of what's you know how things are done now would be far less interesting than the traditional mm. um, but in terms of sort of the mechanics so the I have to be quite vague because there's quite a big twist in my <laughs> story that um, that I would give away if I said too much. But um, 
I don't want, I didn't want my books to be obviously set in any one period. I mean, they're contemporary and they're definitely, you know, there's a reference to an iPhone and there's, um, you know, there's sort of buttonhole cameras and there are definitely things that suggest that it's sort of happening nowish. But yeah. I've also referenced pubs like the crown and goose which i'm sort of minorly obsessed with i realized through the process of writing this um that appear that actually probably would have been closed but i want there to be a sense of ambiguity as to when it's there and i guess that's because i don't want it to be feel dated or because i'm yeah. sort of preserving something in my own mind as well like i don't want to commit it in a way that sort of um that makes it too real i mm. sort of want to um it to be uh yeah Something. Everything has to be a slave to the story. I think that's it. You know, everything has to serve the story. The stuff that's real, the stuff that's made up. I mean, when when I was writing the murder bag, I thought, well, it's been a while since I've been in West End Central. Should I, you know, should I, you know, should I, um, should I go and have a look around? As I'm like the leading expert on the Black Museum, I'm sure they'll <laughs> let me. I'm sure they'll let me come and have a cup of tea. But I thought, you know, there's stuff that I, I wanted um, a basement at West End Central to be full of knives. He's looking for a knife in the first, in the, the murder weapon is one of those old um, Royal Marine Commando na naval daggers. And um, he's, he's, and Max goes down to the basement and I l just like the idea of him coming out of the basement lift and there being tables full of, you know, samurai swords and, and uh, Stanley knives and all this stuff. And there's probably not a basement at West End. I imagine it's a canteen you know it's probably <laughs> yeah. like Penguin Random House you know it's probably a canteen you probably get an apricot croissant in there rather than a samurai sword <laughs> not, not but, a knife uh, yeah. but you don't but yeah I think you can have too much you know I've been on the top floor of um, New Scotland Yard and it's one of the great views of London but kind of once you've been up there you can't make it up mm. you know kind of once you've been up there you think oh, I should I should tell people what, what the view's like from mm. up there and you know it's not necessary I think you know always you got to you got to fight the instinct that this is, you know, there's there's like a could we say you know, to the truth? Yeah, there's like you know, art art is the lie that reveals the truth, as mm. Picasso yeah. said. You know, <laughs> you know. I interviewed Lee Child about the the sort of process of um, writing crime, and he was saying, you know the way that crimes are actually solved is so boring and so mm. laborious and we're so used to these police <laughs> procedures where everything happens bang 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 that if you were to tell it as it is the reader would be asleep before <laughs> page five so he said you need to sort of use enough truth and mm. use enough detail that people will believe you mm. when you actually just make things up so that they sound mm. more believable mm. than the truth would mm. um, and I think that's quite a good um, yeah and the, and the truth it. can be the truth can be interesting. The truth can be surprising. You know, I was I can't one of the early Max Wolf books. I did some research on what happens if you get shot when you're wearing a bulletproof vest. Mm. And um, you know, most painful thing that ever happened to me in my life, as I've never given birth, was breaking my ribs. And you you know you're almost certainly going to get your ribs broken. And you know you don't get a sense of that in most movies and films no. and TV. When people wear a bulletproof vest, it's kind of, oh, I'm not dead after all. But you know, the every guy that I saw was writhing around in absolute agony because they had their a couple of ribs broken. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah, when you put it like that, you suddenly realize, oh yeah, yeah. actually yeah. it's still a pretty bad thing to, yeah. be, to be shot at when you've got a vest on. Exactly, you know? paintballing's bad enough. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go doing any of that. Right, it's time for how would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, 
people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The book off there. This is for anyone who's uh, listening for the first time. This is where both my guests get to pitch for three minutes, if they want all three minutes, a book that they absolutely love, that they think everyone should read this isn't their favorite book i would never do that to you uh, but this is a book that um, means something to you that you love and that you hope others will take away from so before we start the pictures could you tell us which books you've brought to pitch tony what have you brought um i've got a short story by elmore leonard and the short story is called when the women come out to dance and it's in a collection which is now called fire in the hole it was originally published as When the Women Come Out to Dance. There's a little bit of confusion around this. Right. Because um, they made a TV series called Rayland out of one of the stories. And then the publishers, in their infinite cynicism, decided to republish the collection as Fire in the Hole. But um, When the Women Come Out to Dance is my choice. And it was originally in a collection with the same name. Right. Excellent stuff. And Charlotte, what have you gone for? I have gone for The Fact of a Body, Two Crimes, One Powerful True Story. It's by Alexandria Matsano lesnovich I hope I haven't just bastardised her name <laughs> in the pronunciation. <laughs> I think you did very well there, Thank actually. you. Um, so I'm just getting the stopwatch out here, but we need to decide who's going first and who's going second. So, Charlotte, you get to, you get to choose that. OK, thank you. First um, or second? I think that I'm going to let Tony go first. I I knew you were going to do that. But then, Tony, you get to choose whether at your three-minute mark you'd like to be rung out or honked out. 
I'll have, a, I'll have a nice bill, please. You can have the bell, absolutely. Uh, and that's going to be that reserved. Does that mean I'm, I'm stuck with a horn? You're going you're gonna to oh, stuck with the really horn, Charlotte, I'm afraid. <laughs> so you don't have to use your three minutes, yeah. but once we get there, I will be um, ringing you out. So it's over to you then, Tony, to tell us about when the women come out to dance. When the women come out to dance is um, widely considered by um, a lot of people to be the greatest short story ever written. I'm a huge fan of short stories, and when I'm writing a novel... I tend to live on a diet of short stories because instead of reading a novel, which can take you quite a while, you can live in all these different universes. So it's it's for for a a, a growing writer or a professional writer, um, it, short stories are fantastic. And for me, this is the ultimate. And I once taught um, a creative writing class at Curtis Brown, who are my agents, and um, at the and I thought that it's, it took a lot lot of preparation. It's harder work teaching than um, as a 16 year old high school dropout i didn't realize how hard teaching was and i ended the course by reading this story because to me this is where the bar is this is how great storytelling can be this is how compelling writing can be this is when it all comes together there's not a wasted word in this story it grips you from the start to the to the absolute final line the characterization is brilliant the dialogue is surprising and funny and wise the plot is absolutely mesmerizing it's about two women it's about the relationship between two women one of them is um, a Colombian maid called Lourdes spelt like Lourdes but pronounced in the uh, Hispanic pronunciation Lourdes and the other is um, a rich woman called uh, Ginger Mahmood who's a former stripper who's married to uh, a plastic surgeon. Um, and the, the maid, Lourdes, is uh, happily widowed and uh, Ginger is uh, unhappily married. And the uh, the first Mrs. Mahmood back in Pakistan um, died in a, a horrible accident. She was burned after her husband opened a successful practice in the United States. And Ginger is afraid that... Um, She's been sidelined for a mistress and the same fate might possibly uh, happen to her. So she she hires she she hires as her maid Lourdes and they have this wonderful kind of courtship when um, when uh, they're kind of skirting around what actually happened to uh, to Lourdes's husband, who was uh, who picked her up as a mail order bride from Colombia, shipped her back, uh, shipped her back to the United States was um, okay to her as long as he wasn't drinking. But when he was drinking, he was horribly violent, horribly abusive. And he ended up um, being buried among a ton of concrete by some Colombian gentlemen who were never named. And Ginger seeks the same fate for her own, for her own husband. And it's about how the two women skirt around each other, how they come up with this plan, how they negotiate the plan, um, what happens in the aftermath? And uh, the and the ah, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't stop now. <laughs> you've got you've got five seconds if you want to just finish it off. One yeah, last and line. Uh, and it, and it's it's really and you don't know until the last line. You don't know how the story story is resolved, and it's just absolutely brilliant. And I you know I I read it for the when it first came out. Um, I read it. Uh, about two hours ago and it never fails to blow me away it's just how good it is I mean this is how good writing can be wow oh my god you got to fo follow that now. Yeah, I know I really <laughs> regret saying I go after him <laughs> um, I want to come and talk about that 
momentarily, Tony, but we'll put three minutes back on the clock for you, Charlotte. Okay. And you're going to tell us about the fact of a body. Over to you. I am. So the fact of a body is sort of striking in that it subverts the true crime um, genre that we're also obsessed with at the moment and that feels almost that it's been done to death. Excuse the pun. Hmm. Um this story is completely extraordinary because it's it's unfathomable how it even came about. It could have been something so different, but it's it's a book by Alexandria, um, who was um, an American law student working on the retrial of a death row convicted murderer and child molester, Rick Lang, uh, Ricky Langley. Um, and as she's going through the details of the case, she's sort of becomes aware of something in her own subconscious that she can't quite explain and it basically transpires that she's remembering that she was molested by her own grandfather and this book becomes a sort of true true crime story in which she uses um sort of the 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 minutes of the transcripts of the police um, sort of you know the evidence statements mm-hmm. uh, newspaper cuttings all sorts of sort of primary source material from the time to reconstruct the events that took place with Rick, uh, Ricky Langley and Jeremy Guillory who's the child that he molested and killed in a small town in Louisiana in 1992 but what's so fascinating about it not only does she weave the sort of this her own story and her own sort of coming to terms with what happened but she weaves that in with how she feels about this man who is you know sort of basically the, the uh, representative of of the um, of the sort of the terrible uh, experience that she's coming to terms with but she talks a lot about the mechanics of the law and death row so she goes and spends time working with Clive Stafford Smith who's the amazing founder of Reprieve which sort of he's an American attorney and he sort of campaigns tirelessly against the death penalty Um, so there's all these things going on at the same time and she just writes beautifully and it's one of those annoying things when she's not a writer she's a lawyer by trade and then you she just happens to have written this book which is absolutely stunningly put together um, in every sense there's so much going on it's about truth it's about trust it's about morality forgiveness memory um, and the sort of where at what point she talks a lot there's this in the prologue she talks about sort of cause probable cause and and talking about who it is you know all these chains and she uses this example that they use in law school where it's like you know if something happens all these points along the chain where is you know who's responsible for the person being pushed onto the line um, in front of a, tra- a train um, and it's sort of coming to terms with how the law sort of works in terms of serving justice in both her own personal story and that of this true crime. Wow, what <laughs> timing. That was just in- immaculate timing. That timing was absolutely immaculate. That was radio timing. That was two, two seconds in. Uh, wow. Brilliant, both of those. I loved. Let's just delve into them very briefly because, um, Tony, I love a short story, man. I just, I'm with you. I try and read one most nights before bed if I can. Mm. I mean, a short, short one, but you know. Um, So you, you mentioning this, and you talk so passionately about it, um, and 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 how obviously how in such high regard you held it just just came across so much there. Well, he's a you know Elmore Leonard really is the American equivalent of John Le Carre that he's you know is this genre writer that actually when the dust settles will probably be considered to be the greatest writer you know uh, Mm. that um, I think that you know I'm not sure that uh, 
John Lacare will be considered to be um, a lesser talent than uh, who shall we say Ian McEwen or Martin Amis? You know, when the when when the, when history is written, and Elmore Leonard for for me, he's um, you know he's as great as any of the you know he's up there with Philip Roth, he's up there mm. with John Updike, he's really one of the one of the great American writers, and I I think that just all his craft comes together in this story you know that it's you know it's essentially it's a it's a crime story it's a crime story it's about a murder plot um but the characterization is just so good you know that these two women these two women are just so vividly drawn and their backstory you know the backstory it's just carried so lightly mm. and yet rings so profoundly and which is so convincingly um this woman coming from this you know poor poor south american country being brought to america by this you know this guy who's who's got a superior economic status just because of the geographical accident of his birth mm. um and uh and ginger is a is a fascinating character she's like this brilliant stripper but getting older but she's older than the other girls and um and and then she and then she ends up she wants the house she wants the money and then when she gets it she's actually miserable and actually mm. quite fearful um about um what goes on back in the old country to wives that are no longer wanted and just the suspense the suspense is just um how long is it you know what it's just, it feels as substantial as a 500 page novel and it's probably yeah. a 20 page short story yeah. wow yeah. right yeah. and and so already so vivid just from what yeah. you've been saying mm. about it as well uh, and then Charlotte, your choice just so interesting, very left field. I don't know of it. I don't know Do of you her. Know? Oh, you and must read it. No, I mean, just you saying how how annoying of a lawyer to be so beautifully mm. writing so beautifully. Yeah, you it's know, so but but um, so you t you said uh, earlier about. Um, in Cold Blood being was part of your master's possibly or something was my dissertation. So your, when I was seventeen, my, yeah. So like a tri that's the that's the go to true crime. Right. Yeah. Um, but this sort of subverting that whole genre and doing something a bit different is really interesting and totally. probably hadn't been not not necessarily done before. This. No, and I th and it, you know it's just this thing that she's just stumbled upon this amazing thread and it's not mm. really something that can be replicated and I think that also there's so much memoir that's being sort of churned out at the moment lots of it's brilliant and you know there's a lot to be said for memoir but the fact that she's sort of woven together these two things with with so many sort of bigger questions yeah. brought into it and sort of just illuminating these really important questions in such an extraordinary way. Um, I, she actually also wrote this brilliant piece, which um, I stumbled upon recently before the pool was actually taken offline, a sort of the women's um, online magazine, which recently folded. But um, she wrote a piece for them about how she she was giving a talk about you know at a writing conference with a, a male author, and he was saying you know oh people keep coming up to me and asking me how to write a book and you know they asking him about the mechanics of writing and she said why is it that men are always asked about their writing and how you know ha sort of asked how they do it women are asked to regale their own stories mm. and you know it, there's sort of there's something interesting in the fact that she innately did that when she was writing a true crime <laughs> story but I, I also think it's fascinating so I sort of love the fact that she also um, verbalised this thing that I have also been aware of yeah uh, so those books again, the the fact of the body by Alexandra Mazzano Lesnovich. Are we Alexandria, going with? Alexandria, Alexandria, sorry, Alexandria Mazzano Lesnovich. That's I wish you'd done it first. That's much better. <laughs> and when the women come out to dance by Elmore Leonard, and I've got to take one home, and I love both of those pictures, and I'm I'm intrigued by both of them. I have to say, but for 
pure writing passion, I think I'll take Elmore Leonard home I today. think I'll take him too. <laughs> well, I'm, well, I'm writing down the fact of the body, so I'm okay. going to buy a oh, copy of yeah, that. Tony's so making he's got one you. copy. Excellent. We're sort of swapping each other's now, which is exactly which is what the this way is about. Be. Which yeah. is the way it should be, yeah. No, absolutely fascinating. Two great choices. And, um, I mean, I feel like we could sit and talk a lot more about oh, yeah. your writing and, and various other books, but... Uh, you know, I've got to let you go at some point. Um, Tony Parsons' latest novel, Hashtag Taken, is published by Century and it's available now. And The Most Difficult Thing by Charlotte Philby is published by Borough Press, available in July. Not long to wait there, Charlotte. No. Nope. Not long to wait. <laughs> and Tony, you said, you know, this is this is the last one in this series. Is there something that you're burning to write next? Yeah, is, I've, is got, I've got an idea. I'm working on something now and it's it's um, it's strange, you know, because I've... I've I've spent the last six years writing the Maxwell series, and it's, it's strange to uh, enter um, a world that's it's half built. You know, that's yeah. half built. It's made of Lego falling down, and you know, and and because the Maxwell world was so complete, and you know, it had its little areas like the Smithfield Meat Market and the Black Museum and the Boxing Gym and West End Central, and they had these. It wasn't. It was never easy because you always think you can't can't do it again you won't be able to do it as well again so it was never it was never easy but it was it was a world that was that existed and stepping outside of that is tougher but i'm working on um i'm working on a standalone a standalone domestic thriller now um, called um your neighbor's wife and um so you know and so i you know i've got and uh, it's 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 tough but it's always tough you know i mean i've been doing it for a while now and it's always always tough when i i wrote the first Max Wolf book and it you know went to number one and it was kind of everything that you hope for only for one week you know and you think wow I wish it'd stay there forever and you know <laughs> but you know and so you're never really happy but I was pleased with the way it turned out but I said to my editor you know that signed a three book deal and I said I don't think I can do it again I don't think I, I don't can't write a better book than that mm. and my editor Selena Walker said um can you write one that's as good? And I said, yeah, I can do that. And she said, well, go and do that. <laughs> and so, yeah, sometimes you don't have to top yourself. You just have to try and get, you know. And that's a the sign of a good editor as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good yeah. Selena. Yeah. Um, and, and Charlotte, you said you were already writing another one. So although your debut is coming in July, you're working on another. I am. A, a follow-on or is it? It's not a follow-on, yeah. but it's in a very similar vein. Um, and it might be connected. Oh. We shall have to win. <laughs> uh, it's been an absolute pleasure being stuck in a room with you for an hour. Thank you. Thank you both very much for giving the time. Thank you. Cheers. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.